The Guardian. For 13 years, Labour accelerated spending on public services. Now David Cameron has slammed on the brakes. So where are Her Majesty's opposition in the argument against the biggest round of belt tightening since the Second World War? I'm Aditya Chakraborty and this is The Business Podcast. With me in the studio is The Guardian's economics editor, Larry Elliott, Guardian columnist, Julian Glover, and our special guest this week, Morris Glassman, political theory don from London Met University. We're going to devote all of this week's podcast to the crisis. The crisis that is in the Labour Party and across the left, as a need for cuts becomes conventional wisdom and opposition arguments against austerity are left twisting in the wind. But first, another warning siren, if one were needed, from across the Irish Sea. This week, despite all the slashing and burning of public spending, the ratings agency Moody's once again downgraded Ireland's creditworthiness. Henry MacDonald is the Guardian's Ireland correspondent. He describes how the downgrading was received in Dublin. It's a bit of a knock for Brian Cowan's uh, Green Party Fianna Fáil coalition because lots of people in the EU and and leading economists say that Ireland's policies have been exemplary in terms of driving down their public debt, cutting the public services. So it is a bit of a setback for the current administration. However, they would point out that a recent OECD report uh, just a few weeks ago said that uh, by the end of this year and certainly by early 2011, Ireland will move back into growth. So they say in in the terms of the real economy and in terms of particular exports, because Ireland still has a lot of export-driven high-tech companies, that they will come right in the end and, and the economy will it will slowly begin to turn round. They're confident of that. But it is a bit of a setback, but I don't think it's a fatal blow to the confidence of the government. The Irish public sector is one of the highest and one of the highest paid in the whole of the EU. I'll give you an example. Uh, a job was advertised last year for the librarian of the University of College Galway. It was the salary was three times that of the head of the Bodleian Library in Oxford, and this is a, a provincial university in the west of Ireland, albeit a very good one. That gives you an idea of the level of the pay levels in Ireland are very high for the public sector, as are pensions, and the, the, the government obviously has a huge deficit which they have to cut now. The unions say in response that it wasn't us that caused the crisis, it was the greed of property developers and bankers who fuelled an unsustainable economic and indeed property boom. But the Irish government say we've no choice, we have to cut our deficit in order to retain confidence in the Irish economy and get our, our national debt down. So far they've got away with it, they, have a, they had a brutal budget last December despite a wave of protests across Ireland. And I suspect that there'll be more cuts coming down the line and they'll probably get away with that as well. Henry MacDonald there, The Guardian's Ireland correspondent. Larry, how instructive is Ireland's example? Well, I think it is interesting because the Irish have done everything that was supposed to be done to be a good boy. They were the poster child for the the austerity brigade and Ireland was doing what the government here said we should be doing. Um, they were very early into the into the cuts programme. They took the acts to public sector pay. They laid off large numbers of people. And what they're finding now is that uh, 
they're having trouble getting the deficit down because growth is so weak. They're currently into their third year of uh, falling output. Unemployment's gone up from about 4% to about 13%. The deficit is still around 12% of GDP. And there's absolutely no way they're going to get it down to the levels that they were planning uh, unless they can get their growth rates up. And having completely killed off the domestic economy, I just can't see any way they're going to do that. So there, there is a warning here for for, uh, for the UK in two in two respects. One is that unless you can get real growth going, you're not really going to get the deficit down. In fact, you're going to be running to stand still. And the second is that you just can't please these uh, ratings agencies. That they'll they'll kill you if if you have a too high deficit, and they'll kill you if you don't uh, if you don't get the growth to get the deficit down. So it's very very hard to please them. Julian Glover, that that's the uh, Ireland example as it's helpful to social democrats. But there 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 is another way in which the Ireland example can be used politically, and, and the Conservatives have been using that along with Greece. Well, they'll say if you don't start cutting, you will get downgraded, you'll get trapped in this spiral, you'll get higher interest rates in the end because people don't trust you. But I think there is worry about a double-dip recession. And I think the Conservative Party, we may have to do a special on them too, maybe the coalition, haven't yet got a plan B for if this doesn't work. They're not naive. They're not completely closed to the possibility of renewed recession turning up. We want to know what they're going to do if that happens. Ireland, however, it's very hard to see what else they could do at this position. I think if Ireland suddenly announced it was going to have a great increase in spending and try and undo some of the cuts, and we've um, got some politicians in Ireland wanting that. I mean, one of the reasons this might have happened is because the Green Party in Ireland, which is part of the government, said that it uh, wasn't certain it supported the next round of sort of budget cuts. That led a bit perhaps to some uncertainty as to whether those would go through and may have also influenced this, this change in the rating. You know, if the Liberal Democrats went wobbly on some of the cuts, what would happen in Britain? It's frightening for everybody. But what we need is global growth. And each individual country will have a programme that hopes global growth will come along and pull it out of recession. Um, and at the same time, it can cut. Well, Larry's the expert on whether that's going to come. Well, I think the problem is if you have a synchronised austerity programme around the world, then you end up with everybody trying to export into everybody else's shrinking domestic market. And that just seems to me to be a logical absurdity. I mean, that, that, that is the problem, that everybody, uh, Ireland, Britain, Germany, Greece, Italy, you name it, America... China is all trying to are all trying to actually export into somebody else's growing market. But if everybody's slashing their domestic market, that just isn't going to happen. Maurice Glassman, to what extent do you think the examples of Ireland or Greece are sort of figuring into the kind of the high political debate over in Westminster? Well, I think it's factored in. I think it's a central part of the conservative story about Greece and about Ireland. I, mean, I don't think it's really relevant relevant for us. I mean, Ireland is a very extreme case. I don't know what I think of the UK economy in, in that they always had a huge problem with manufacturing, their substantive economy. They were locked into ours. They put an enormous amount on the property boom. And, that doesn't and, sound that different from the UK. Well, we're in the Euro. That's one difference. <laughs> that's, a, that's one big difference, yeah. Yeah, and also in terms, of, in terms of Europe, they got an enormous amount of farming subsidy coming in, which was then undermined by the Eastern European Succession. In, t- in terms of Greece, I think that we've got a really, I think this is one that the left has called very badly. Uh, Greece was a very corrupt country, uh, extremely dishonest in its relationship with other people. The fraud on its public accounts could only be rivaled by the fraud of the City of London in terms of its accounts. So we have a mirror with Greece. I would say that the City of London um, and the, and the Greek state mirror each other in their absolute lack of virtue. So, so Greece has to have a, a massive reckoning. But, I mean, we, we do have significantly greater assets. We do have a significantly larger manufacturing base. 
I, I, I think that the parallels between Britain as a large country, I think the parallels are much better with Germany, France than with Greece and, and with Ireland. OK, so that's the international picture. But let's turn to one of the big issues for Labour, which is what it says about the past 13 years. We will not return to the old boom and bust. As we enter the 10th year of growth under this government, the only government in British history to be entering the 10th consecutive year of uninterrupted economic growth. And everybody knows the choice we made. We picked internationalism over isolationism, leading the G20 to a global deal that I can tell you will save 15 million jobs. Every government across Europe made the choice to act. Every major political party across the world chose to act. Only one party thought it was best to do nothing. Only one party with pretensions to government made the wrong choice. The Conservative Party of Britain. The the first point of recapitalisation was to save banks that would otherwise have collapsed. And we not only saved the world, uh, saved the banks and saved... From boom to bust to bailout, Labour's economic legacy. Let's begin with the case against Gordon Brown from Neil O'Brien, director of the right-leaning think tank Policy Exchange. The main problem with uh, Gordon Brown's economic legacy is the enormous debt and deficit they left behind. And you can slice that in a lot of different ways. It's the biggest deficit since the Second World War. And compared to 2006, we're on course to have trebled the national debt with the typical family of four now having national debt equivalent to £100,000 each, so effectively a second mortgage. We're spending more on debt interest payments than running schools in England, and 10 pence in every pound of tax you pay is going on debt interest. So really a pretty disastrous legacy in terms of the deficit. Probably the the second uh, worst legacy of the Brown years is to do with welfare. During the enormous years of the um, kind of debt-fueled boom, um, we still never managed to reduce the number of people on out-of-work benefits. You're still left with five and a half million people stuck out of work for almost the entire period. And now, of course, with the recession, we have record numbers on welfare heading up towards six million. So I think that failure uh, really is probably the other great failure of the Brown years. Neil O'Brien there from Policy Exchange. Larry Elliott, is that fair? Not entirely, no. I, mean, I think the bit about the deficit is is slightly slightly absurd really i mean what what does neil o'brien think the government here should have done in the face of the worst recession uh we've seen since the 1930s just allowed the economy to go deeper into the mire and try to balance the budget i mean this is that's the sort of economics uh, of pre-keynesianism i mean most of the increase in the deficit if you look at what happened to the deficit it was running about two or three percent of gdp before the deficit before the recession started in 2006 7 and then it, it, it blew out to 11 percent of gdp a bit of that was was what was actual government measures most of it was the consequence of the recession you know the government's actually taken less tax and pay out more in 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 benefits and uh, you know I think that actually the government did the right thing during that period. It did actually try and support the economy. And most of the increase in the deficit is caused by the external factors caused by the recession. That's true of most other countries. Britain's not alone in that. I mean, I think that where I would say there is the case against Brown is that um, in the previous years, in the 10 years leading up to the recession, we should have been running small surpluses on the on, on the public finances rather than the 2 or 3% deficit. I mean, the, the, the accusation that the, the roof wasn't 
amended while the sun was shining does have some truth in it and if you want to be a true Keynesian and spend money during a recession you have to say that you build up some sort of war chest during the good times which is what Brown did at the end of the 90s and the beginning of the noughties he actually was in a position to actually support the economy at that, at that period and I think that but he actually, as that clip showed, got carried away with his own with his own sense of self-importance. He actually was very hubristic during that period and thought he had abolished boom and bust and, and, and actually mistook what was in some senses a bubble economy for something that had real deep roots. And I think that was the, that was the problem. I don't really think the government's handling of the economy during the, during the crisis years was that bad. In fact, most of the things it did during that period were actually quite good. Julian, the case against Gordon Brown looked stronger in 2010 than it did in 2006. I mean, the Conservatives went in 2005 general election, sort of basically along the same sort of big picture economic policy as Labour. David Cameron held the same kind of big picture tax and spend policy as Labour up until 2008 or thereabouts. So why is it then that the Conservatives managed to divest themselves of that kind of shared, that kind of consensual view of the way to run an economy? Because at the core of conservatism is a horror of debt, and they didn't like debt, and they're right that Gordon Brown has left a very large and growing debt. I think Larry makes a strong point about the action during the recession. I think the greatest charge against Gordon Brown is the period in which he was Chancellor before he became Prime Minister, in which he gave the impression that he somehow had engineered an amazing, uh, uniquely British economic situation, which was in fact dragged along by much of the world, um, was inherited in, in, in large part um, from the Conservative Party um, and was not going to be sustained. And he did very little um, to try and re-engineer the British economy to sustain it. He, in fact, basically did a deal, which is he wouldn't quite tax to the level of necessity for the spending he agreed to on the grounds that the City of London would keep generating enough cash to sort of bridge the difference. And therefore, the City of London was allowed to do all sorts of things, and to grow very rapidly and not to be too bullied by Ed Balls, the city minister. I mean, I um, the, and, and, and this sort of hope that all of this wonderful situation would just continue forever, um, well, it was very naive. And I think looking back, you know, everybody sees it was naive. The Conservative Party, of course, didn't question it at the time, so they also need to be put under some scrutiny for it. But all of us just sort of sat there going, gosh, it's rather good to be British. We can all buy very expensive espresso coffee and get richer and richer and have well-subsidised public services and go to the opera and not have high tax and fly on Ryanair for a pound. Life seemed brilliant, and we should have realised it wasn't. I have to say that Larry did write the book that said it wasn't brilliant, but... Yeah, I mean, I think. Essentially, sorry, 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 sorry to butt in. I mean, I think the problem was we had a private debt problem during the during not the Brown Chancellor years, yeah, not yes. a public debt problem. Yeah. And that private debt problem has become a public debt problem as the government has tried to do something about the the the, the, the bursting of the bubble. That's effectively what's happened under the New Labour period. That for the first ten years we disguised the fact that actually people um, at the bottom of the pile weren't really getting very big increase in their real wages, and in fact, quite a lot of middle middle income people weren't either by actually large amounts of debt and rising health. Prices. Just briefly, I think the other sort of charge against Brown is, is not just that he spent money, but he spent it very badly. And he mistook the idea of announcing numbers with lots of noughts on the end. As we heard in those clips, you know, he'd, he'd create 50 billion or 50 million jobs. I mean, these figures are just fantasy. Um, but announcing these things was the same as really doing something serious. And cash was just sort of sloshed around very inconveniently. Lots of it was hidden away. Debt was done in strange ways. We've seen the, just the recent collapse of the PPP on the tube in London. It was really badly managed. It wasn't just should you spend or not spend, the spending that did happen was done badly and we're now left with the consequences of that too. Morris, aren't these two being incredibly hard on, on Labour in the past 13 years? I mean, we're in the middle of, we were, were in the middle of a housing boom for a long period. We had a financial sector boom for a huge amount of the past decade. Um, we had political consensus about what should be done about tax and spending. And I 
don't remember too many people, apart from the old Malco, like Larry Elliott, saying that we ought to be rebalancing the economy or doing stuff differently. I think that, um, on the contrary, I think you're both being much too kind <laughs> to, um, to, to Gordon Brown. I think Julian's being much too kind to, to the Conservative Party and particularly to Thatcherism. I think this is a fundamental uh, political issue and an issue of political economy. Um, from the big bang on, the whole meaning of economic policy in Britain was was to back financial capital over any form of manufacturing capital to support a virtual economy rather than any form of a substantive or, or virtue economy. And the consequences of that are enormous. So so my argument is, is, is that the Brown legacy is catastrophic for, for Labour and it's catastrophic uh, precisely because it couldn't distinguish between different forms of capital growth. There wasn't any real substantive growth outside um, public sector investment in the regions of our country. So we had the manufacturing collapse and really the private sector growth, which was completely obscured by the Labour Party argument, was generated by by the privatisation of public sector investment. That yes, was and, the, what, and what job growth there was, and there was job growth, was, was offset by migration. And, and so that, we had, we had yeah. public sector growth and we had migration growth. We didn't actually have anything else. So what we had was an incredible growth in an unskilled labour force which was completely disguised by this transferable skills agenda a complete breakdown of any sense of specific skill so i think we should really concentrate on the problems of the brown era more all right but then let's take you at your word if you're going to say that the brown legacy was based upon uh, which seems to be consensus around this table the brown legacy was based upon a bubble uh didn't do enough to rebalance the economy should have done more to put money aside Certainly with the not not all the way through i think actually from uh, the for, all right I, from I, 2003 I, I think, I think, onwards I think early period yeah. brown was actually quite quite solid okay. when he was following ken clark's budget <laughs> i think that in, you know if you look at what happened between 1997 and 2001 during that parliament actually what he did was build up a big surplus during the during the IT bubble quite criticised very heavily for it at the time and was then able to use that surplus when the economy turned down after 2000 I think it was that was that was actually that was actually a classical example of how of how Keynesian fiscal policy is supposed to work I think the problem the real problems happened between 2001 and 2007 okay but step back from from the numbers for a second uh, if, if you really think that Brown was such a disaster, and I'll, I'll start with you first, Morris, then that leaves a huge problem for the current crop of Labour leadership candidates and for the Labour Party, because it is then left with either having to, to, to wash its hands in the past 13 years, which is a political impossibility because they were all at senior ranks within the party mm. and in government, or it says, actually, if things weren't as bad as, 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 as the critics are now saying. What does yeah. Labour say about the Brown, Brown period then? Well, I, th- I think we haven't even begun. Labour hasn't even begun a reckoning with with the new Labour economic legacy. I think that the political economy will be at the heart of any party renewal, and and the dilemma dilemmas are huge. It, it can't go back to a, an unreformed Keynesian national reflation package that's completely broken to it. Its uncritical embrace of globalisation led it to the fact that I agree with Larry entirely, its actions were magnificent during the crash. I would go further. Its actual political action was huge, but it was it was presented almost like an administrative correction of something that had gone slightly out of kilter. The, the instability of the financial sector as a motor for growth is, is the key is the key problem that we face as a country and for um, for labor it it hasn't told a good story this is where julian is right 
it hasn't told a good story about how it spent too much. It hasn't told a good story at all about the role of it of the city in and the in generating the recession. It hasn't find, found a plausible story about growth in terms of how to read. I think, I think, that's, I think, that's, I think it's really the, the, the important word there really is story. I think the, what, the reason that Labour's in such trouble is that the Conservatives have got a better story, mm. or it seems like a better story to the public out there. The Conservative story is very simple, which is that Labour... Maxed out its credit card. Labour maxed out on its credit card, you know... Everybody out there, private sector, individuals are tightening their belts in very tough times and you just can't have a government which is carrying on spending at the same sort of rate. Therefore, it, it's only right and proper that the government should be tightening its belt. Now, you know, Keynesian would say that it's absolutely stupid for the public sector to be retrenching at the same time as the private sector. And if the, if the private sector is borrowing less, then it, you know, it behoves the public sector to, to fill the breach. But that is not a message that Labour is able to articulate. And it's partly um, one of the reasons it's not able to articulate it is because it can't actually repudiate its legacy. It can't actually it can't actually make the proper left wing social democratic case, which is that most of what we did up until 2007 was actually misguided, totally misguided from a social democratic sense. We should have been tougher on the banks. We should have been tougher on the city. We should have done more about what we should have done more more about uh, real wage increases. We should have done more about manufacturing. But and it's unable to articulate a proper alternative to the conservative narrative until it actually does that. Until it actually does actually get rid of the baggage of its past. Yeah, I mean, but it, it's potentially got a much better story to tell than the Conservatives because it can balance the story about the deficit with a story about about lack of growth and a story about a political... I would go further than naivety. It's a cynicism in relation to the political power of capital and, and of the city. But it can't do that unless it embraces... And this is where I think probably Larry and I would go into... A, a discussion, let's say. <laughs> let's not have that discussion. Julia, I just want to say that the social democratic model itself needs renewal. It, you can't go to a yeah. reverse Julian, position. Come, in, come, come on, we've all been very kind to Labour here. It's, the reason it can't tell us stories, it's got nothing to say. It's not about the problem of communication, that it actually knows what it thinks and it's just really struggling to get it over. It, it, Labour is utterly bereft of any clear answer on the economy now. It, it, it is still confused as to whether what it did last year, which was to embrace the argument being put forward by the Conservative Party and the Liberal Democrats about... Um, the deficit was the good thing, and the problem was that Gordon Brown didn't say cuts enough or early enough, as you know, Mandelson. I mean, that's book, all in for instance, memoirs. Mandelson, right? for instance, yeah. is arguing, or whether you know, which I think is a, is, a, is an argument that could be made that Labour should never have even got into this territory. And some Labour leadership candidates are now rather unbravely sort of briefing that quite soon they're going to really repudiate this from last year. And, and you know, friends of friends of friends are all saying this. Well, I mean, somebody just needs to sort of say this clearly. I think that the Labour Party even went as far as putting forward an act of parliament to uh, halve the deficit, halve the deficit without a plan to halve the yeah. deficit. So it left the Conservative Party with pretty big cuts to put through. Um, now, maybe the Conservative coalition cuts are going much further. I mean, but anyway, there were going to be cuts, and Labour somehow thought this was a good idea. Um, so important we had to have a law on it. So Labour basically sold the pass on all of this and just agreed with the government. I think, La- I, think La- I think La- they, Labour's approach worked, was entirely muddled. I mean, they haven't I think worked out whether they disagree with what the government is now doing or whether they sort of agree but the government's doing it a bit soon. Or, or what, what is their argument? And that's because they don't know. It's not because they can't communicate it. They just don't know. So, Larry, what should the Labour story be? Uh, the Labour story should be that 
what happened between 2007 and 2009, perhaps we're going to have a second phase of it, was a colossal failure of the free market and free market thinking. It was a colossal failure of a deregulated model. It was a colossal failure of a model of growth which was based around financialization rather than the real economy. And that only a party of the left can actually deal with that structural problem in the economy and put things right so you're basically hang on hang on julian you're basically saying that labor ought to disavow itself of everything it did between 97 and 2000 labor's problem labor's problem is that it's unable to articulate the real alternative because it was it did believe between 1994 and 2007 in a market-based model, which was, you know, if you look at the way in which it costed the City of London, the way in which it actually made life easier for financial firms to come here from other countries on the basis that London would be a light-touch regulatory centre. Everything that Labour did between those between 1997 and 2007 said we believe in market forces and we only really believe in a little bit t- tinkering around the edges. So when the model collapsed, Labour was, Labour was faced with a very 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 big problem it it could either it could either say everything we did up to that period was misguided and move on or it could try and defend that legacy and be stuck uh, in a in a sort of nether world which is where it's been ever since where it does a little bit of social democracy but without any real conviction Mm. and without any real vision of where it wants to be do any of the candidates believe that i mean i agree that that is probably what they ought to be saying i think there's a fear inside labor that might not be electorally popular um do you think it is electorally popular to say well it's clearly clearly among some voters it will be popular whether it's going to be enough to get a majority i don't know but i think labor ought to be driven by what it believes first and then think about the electoral maths afterwards but the but the the trouble for the candidates is ed balls who seems to be making the best show of opposing this government amongst the leadership candidates is is the person who did the light touch city regulation and he's not about to repudiate it david Miliband, well he sort of worries that might not look very blairite or or he's meant to be the modernizing candidate next labor doesn't involve saying this diane abbott can say it and everyone just patronizes her um so Andy Burnham, well, nobody's really heard very no. much from him, but probably he is saying it and no one's listening. And Ed Miliband ought to be saying it, but I can't work out whether he is. Morris, this is a really good question. I mean, how much of this is this uh, a, a party that's, uh, that can't really face up to its past? Or how much of it is simply down to the fact that there are these people like Manson, Brown, uh, who come from a 1992 generation, people formed by that sort of John Smith budget, which uh, people say lost them the 92 general election. And that as those players uh, go to the sidelines, a new, new, younger crop of leadership people will be able to articulate something different. Well, the reality will bring that about. But as it stands, um, I mean, I, I started to disagree with, with, with Julian again. I don't think any of them are really close to, um, once get go to, to Larry, it's the embrace of financial markets that is the root as the paradigmatic model of what markets should be. So the whole thing with best value, the whole thing with maximisation of returns on investment throughout the country. So the assets of the entire country were denuded from the regions, sent to the city, and then they were lost in some bizarre, innovative financial fantasy and had to be bailed out. So I think we're in a trauma. I think we're in a, it's like we've been in a really it's in in the 70s you know when i was educated this would this would be called 
a paradigmatic crisis. So they can't quite make sense of the world. The previous ways of explaining the world don't make sense. But these are people who are putting themselves forward as potential prime minister and leader of the well, country. I, I don't think so they ought to be I don't able think, to understand this. And I don't think if they can't, Labour should look for somebody else. I don't think it's the case. Well, I, think, it, I think. I mean, I think this is. I mean, you mentioned the seventies. What's striking is that when the crisis happened in the nineteen seventies, there was a generation of right wing politicians. He, he could have a very, very, yeah. very, very good analysis. What, what, what was going wrong, and they had a program for putting it right. I mean, the the, the contrast between, you know, Th- Thatcher in seventy five uh, to seventy nine and the Labour Party now is incredibly depressing. I think because you know they had they'd, they'd done all the hard yards of the Tories in the, in that period, well, and they'd, the whole... they'd got they'd, they'd got a po- they've got policy wonks who were working on their analysis of what had gone wrong with cases, and then they and they were they were ready for the crisis. Yeah, well, as the rappers say, we've lived it. I mean, we've lived the whole consequence of the new right narration of the crisis of the 70s of stagflation and that that was the necessity of letting markets rip and and innovation being driven by entrepreneurs and the primacy of capital fantastic these are good things no they 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 are profoundly bad things unless they're balanced what's wrong with entrepreneurs driving growth well, entrepreneurs is one important part of driving growth, but what's always been neglected but you just is, said is, is the bad skills. Thing. No, is is the skills, energy necessary of engaging the workforce also in driving that growth. So what you came out of that, the reason I think it's a fundamentally bad thing, is the incredible stress on managerialism, which we haven't mentioned. Well, that was and a core part of all politics, but particularly Labour in the, in the, in the 90s. This is what's got to be... This so is depressing. This is what's got, but don't underestimate the, the authoritarian nature of Thatcherite private sector management and public sector management, which, which was a genuinely but awful thing. The obsession thing. and the endless debates inside Labour about how to manage public services, that's, that's something that shouldn't have been done by politicians. So this is what, I mean, this is what I want to open up, is that that's the discussion, is that the public sector reform and the private sector reform have got to go together, and they've both got to engage with greater democratic representation of the worker interest in firms. And, and that's where I think Germany is a very interesting example. I think that what we see is with its apprenticeship model, with its vocational system, with its worker representation, with its, with its local banks, the German economy is substantive and real. It's just a, a reality of Europe. And, and ours went with a very nasty burp and it was gone. Julian, politically, um, I mean, what, what Morris is saying sort of philosophically might make sense. But politically, how much rethinking does Labour really have to do? Surely come next summer when we're all waking up to the reality of spending cuts such as we've never seen before and the public realise it actually doesn't really yeah. like think, it very think, much that Labour will, you know, will automatically find the pendulum swinging back. I think Labour's going to get a short-term sugar rush um, from a lot of people being mega, mega unhappy with what they see this government about to do. And that could be enough to carry them to victory at the next election. It's completely possible. We've had some poll. We hardly have any polling at the moment. You disagree, Morris. So, but I think what will actually happen... But, you know, God knows it depends a bit on the growth in the economy or non-growth. I think Labour will feel that it now represents a clear number of people who oppose the government, that there's marches in the streets. It really will feel excited. It'll feel it's got a cause. It won't have thought very hard about what it's really offering, but it'll have the, what appears to be the weight of the people behind it. And then it will realise a large part of Britain doesn't really agree with it and sees it as an angry party, sees it as a party without an answer. And we will appear to have a very divided politics in a close election. And actually, you know, I worry unless Labour comes up with an explanation of what it wants to do instead 
it won't be able to get itself over Part, the line. Parties can win just by being opposition. around. Yeah. Around. I mean, Wilson, it, Wilson yeah. did in '74. I mean, he just sat. He did virtually no thinking between '70 and '74, and the Labour won the election in '74 yes. just because of the crisis in the in in, in the government. I mean, the, the Labour thought it could do the same between '79 and '83, and, and found the whole that strategy exploded by the Falklands War and the splits in its own its own party. So there's no guarantee. I mean, I, if I was Labour, I would be working on the, the worst case assumption, which is actually that the the coalition's economic policy does work. I mean, that, that's in, in four years' time, they have to face, or five years' time, they have to face up to, the, to the, the possibility, I think it's quite a low possibility, that actually slashing and burning the public sector does lead to, um, you know, crowding into the private sector and we see some strong growth. It's not, it's not totally inconceivable. And then what does Labour lab- say in that, in that respect then? Well, it just loses. <laughs> but if, if it carries on in the current way, I think it has to come up with a proper critique of of the free market of the free market system and the financialized financialization of the city of london i mean that's that's what i would be doing i'd be doing some serious thought about the where labor got to between 1994 and 2007, because I think it, it, it did end up in a blind alley. My, my, my sense of this is that there's another, there's another financial crisis lurking out there at some point, and Labour needs to be prepared for it. But it, it can't. I think it just, just can't go on and assume that it's going to be swept back into power because people are revolted by public spending cuts. That would be very, very short-sighted. Okay, well, that's it for this week. My thanks to Morris Glassman, Julian Glover and Larry Elliott. The producer was Phil Maynard. I'm Adit Chakraborty. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.